One of the things that God has equipped um, all, all of his people, all people that he created with uh, is a memory. We all have the capacity to remember. And so a memory is basically the ability to recall facts and events and experiences that we have. And the things that, that are impressed on our memories really shape what we are and what we become. So our personality, our values, our worldview, all of those things in some way are related to our memories, the things that we observe growing up, the things that we hear, the things that we're taught, those things play a part in shaping us. Now, over a lifespan or even over the season that we go through in a life, there's a lot of information that comes our way. We hear a lot of facts, we see a lot of things, we go through a lot of experiences, and all of that is more than what we can possibly remember or, or commit to our memory. And one of the challenges that we face in life is the challenge of knowing what's important and what we want to keep in our memory and what we can kind of let slide. And oftentimes we get that wrong. <laughs> the things that we want to remember, they slide. And the things that we wish we could forget, those things kind of stay with us. But nevertheless, uh, the memory that we have is a God-given capacity that, that's important to every one of us. Now, as a parent, when I raise my kids, there's a lot of times that, that we talk about things or we go through things in the Word of God or there are experiences, things that happen to us in our lives that I will reiterate or point out to them and I'll tell them, remember this. Keep this in your memory. They'll, we'll see something. Sometimes we'll pass um, an advertisement you know, on the side of the road while we're driving in the car and I'll, I'll point it to the kids and I'll say, kids, do you see that? I want you to remember that ad and here's why. Because sometime in your life in the future, this is what you're going to see. And this is what this means. And this is what's happening in this. And, and I'm seeking to impress things upon their memory that I know are important for them for their future. As I'm training them up in this world. And as parents, we understand the importance of doing that. Because we want to equip them. Now, God, as the supreme parent, is much like that with his kids. We see all the way from the beginning of the Bible through the end, God is telling his people, there are certain things that I want you to remember. The book of Deuteronomy, which is just the fifth book in the Bible, there's nothing new that's written in that book. All of it is just a rehashing of things that God already did. And 14 times in the book, God says, remember. Don't forget that this happened. Don't forget why. The reason why God had them go through many of the rituals that they went through, the Passover and the keeping of the feasts, many of the songs that they would sing and the things that would be spoken, all of that was done on purpose, intentionally by God, in order to stir the memory of those uh, that were his people, that they wouldn't forget the lesson or the principle or the thing that was important in all of those uh, uh, rituals for them to remember. And so it's important. You recall that um, many times God would tell his people to erect monuments, piles of stones and different things. And then he would say, so that when you see this, you'll remember what I did to these kings or to this place. And when your kids see them, then you can tell your kids, this is what the Lord did. God says continually, don't forget. 
And so the memory is an important part of our spiritual capacity because there's things that God wants us to remember. Now, the Apostle Peter, who was a church father, he, near the end of his life and near the end of his ministry, takes his pen again in hand and he writes a letter to the church. And the purpose of his letter is that he, there are a few things in his mind that are important that he sees that need to be recorded eternally that we must never forget. And that's the, the whole intent behind Peter's writing and, and what we have in Second Peter is that he has three things in three chapters that he's going to tell us that we already know. But he's going to explain it very clearly. And he says that the reason I'm doing this is because I don't want you to forget how important this is. That if you forget these things, it's going to be a detriment to your Christian experience, to your personal growth, to your safety in the faith, to your outlook in life. And so it's important to you and I that we understand these things, and it's important to Peter. Now, if you look with me in the first chapter at verse 12, I want you to see where Peter tells us that this is his motive. He says in verse 12, he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, that's King James word that means absolutely necessary. As long as I am in this tabernacle, speaking of his body or his, his uh, life physically, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, this body of mine, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. So I know I'm going to heaven soon. I know that I'm not going to be able to tell you these things in the future. And so I'm writing these things down so that you know them. And then he says in verse 15, Moreover, I will endeavor, or I'll make it my aim or my purpose, my intent, that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. In other words, Peter says, whether I got to pray for it or whatever I got to do, I'm going to make sure this ends up in the Bible. I don't know what one is yet, Peter says, a New Testament at least, but I'm going to make sure that you have these things recorded for you. And so Second Peter is an essential ingredient for the Christian, for, for us as believers to understand these things. So you ask the question and you say, well, what uh, is it that Peter wants us to remember? What are the themes of these three chapters? Well, the first, chapter one, Peter's theme or exhortation to us is to remember to always be growing. The importance of growth and progress in the Christian life. And so that's the theme of chapter one. Chapter two is the reality of falsity. It's important that we understand that not everything that names the name of Christ or claims to be spiritual or godly absolutely is. And so Peter in chapter 2 reminds us that it's important that we know how to discern the difference between what is really true and of the Lord and what is spiritually false and from some other source. That's chapter 2. And then chapter 3, the third thing that Peter doesn't want us to forget is that Jesus is coming again. And so chapter 3 deals with the second coming of Christ. And so three chapters, 
three things of absolute importance to the Christian. And so tonight, as we take a look at chapter 1, Peter reminds us of the importance of Christian growth and progress. Now, Jesus taught us that spiritual progress and spiritual growth is a process and not an event. And what that means is that the way that we get closer to God or the way that we become more spiritual isn't that all of a sudden we have this moment where God just drops maturity on us or like a light switch goes off in heaven and all of a sudden we're holy and we have victory over sin and we understand all mysteries and everything just suddenly makes sense. It doesn't happen like that. Jesus taught us that maturity and progress is a growth. He riddled or peppered the New Testament with illustrations such as seeds and plants and trees and vines and gardens and vineyards and thyme. Almost every parable or every illustration that Jesus gave concerning our spiritual maturity was somehow connected to the concept of growth, that it's something that happens over time. So the same thing is true for us, that as we grow, it's, it's a process. It happens as we walk with him. Now, we understand that in the physical world. We look at a garden, or we, we watch a tree over its lifespan, or a, or a vine, or fruit, uh, an apple on a tree. We, we see it in our own bodies as we grow. We understand the concept of growth in the physical realm, but what does it look like in the spiritual realm? What does it mean for us to grow as Christians, or for us to grow in the Lord, or grow in our faith? Because that's invisible. That's intangible. You can't necessarily touch it or, or, or show somebody a picture of it or Instagram it or, or whatever. It, it's something that, that, that happens and it's true and it's real, but what does it look like and how does it happen? And so that's the question that Peter answers in the chapter that's before us. Now, if you're taking notes, what Peter's going to give to us over the span of these 21 verses is basically uh, um, uh, four ways in which the Christian grows. Um, And so he's going to tell us, and I'll bring these back up as we go through it, but number one is that we start at the finish line. Number two is that it requires a good, healthy, steady spiritual diet. Number three is he's going to tell us, thankfully, what it looks like and what it produces in our lives. And then he's going to close out the chapter by, by explaining to us why the Bible is so important in the process. He's going to start off at the beginning by telling us that it is, but he's going to finish off at the end by explaining why. Why is the Bible so absolutely essential? And so Peter begins uh, this chapter now as he talks to us about spiritual growth um, in his introduction. And so look with me at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as Peter addresses us and begins this this second letter now, there's four things in this verse by way of uh, of introduction that I believe are are noteworthy and and, uh, worth pointing out and, and seeing. First of all is the name that Peter identifies himself as at the very beginning. He addresses himself as Simon Peter. 
And the reason why I find that to be so incredibly beautiful is because Simon Peter is the combination of two names that identify two different sides of the same man. When Jesus first encountered Peter, he looked at him for the very first time and it says that he examined him, he beheld him. And he looked at Peter and Jesus said, you are Simon. And the word means shifty, unstable, like sand. You are Simon, but you shall be Peter, Petros, or little stone, or rock. And essentially what Peter was, or Jesus was saying to Peter is he was saying that I see what you are apart from me, and I see what you will be one day because of me. And throughout the ministry and life of Peter, he's called either Simon or Peter, depending on how he's doing spiritually at the moment he's being addressed. So sometimes Jesus looks at Peter and he says, hey, Simon. And sometimes he looks at him and says, hey, Peter. And over the lifespan of Peter, he went from Simon to Peter. So you say, well, why at the end of Peter's life does he identify himself as Simon Peter? Why doesn't he just call himself Peter? Because towards the end of Peter's life, he recognized that even though he'd been walking with Jesus for all of these years, and that he was who he was, and that he was doing what he was doing, he knew that he still had a Simon side, even still, nevertheless. And every one of us has a what we were name, and a what he's making us name. It's important for us to understand that until we get to glory, we're always going to have both sides. We're always going to wrestle. It's amazing to me that at the end of Peter's life, he's willing to lay that bare before us and let us see that he's saying, yeah, guys, I still have a Simon side, even at the other side of all of this. I'm amazed at how humility grows as we grow in Christ-likeness in us. It should always be a mark of it. I think of Paul. At the very beginning of Paul's ministry, He said concerning himself that he was the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church of God. And you think, well, that's a pretty humble statement, right? Wow, Paul, you who wrote more of the New Testament than any of the others, you called yourself the least of the apostles. But a little bit later in Paul's life, after he had grown for a while, he calls himself less than the least of all the saints. Now, that's an incredibly large step down, isn't it? He's gone from the least of the apostles to less than the least of all the saints. You'd think, well, no, Paul, you've grown. You've actually progressed. You're you're bigger than you were when you began. And he would say, no, no. The more I grow, the smaller I am. And at the end of Paul's life, just before laying it down and going to the guillotine, he would call himself the chief of sinners. As he grew in Christ, he became less in his own mind. And that's always a mark of spiritual maturity, that the older we get in the Lord, the more humble we become and the less we see ourselves. That's the exact opposite of the way that it is in the world and with the people of the world. Usually, with worldly people that don't know God, the older they become, the more proud and obstinate they become. That's all they've got left. They no longer have the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh. Those things are all burned out and gone. They've been experienced, been there and done that. And the only thing an older person usually has left is the pride of what they've accomplished in their life and how far they've come and how much respect they deserve. It's not the way it is in the cross. In the cross, to grow is to become less. And so Simon Peter, 
I'm as much of a shifty man now in my flesh as I was then. Though by the grace of God, he has made me Peter at the same time. So Simon Peter, his name. Second of all, he mentions his calling. He calls himself a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word servant in the Greek means servant by choice. When Jesus sets us free, and when he saves us, he sets us free. He doesn't purchase us out of slavery to sin and of the devil in order to make us slaves unto himself. He purchases us and redeems us unto freedom. He sets us free. It'd be like buying, some, buying a slave out of the slave market. And the purpose of buying them is so that you can then cut the chains and say, now go do, you're free. I've bought your freedom. I've paid for it. Now go. That's the way the Lord saves us. But what he calls us to is he, is he says this. He says, hey, listen, you're free. But if you desire to serve me, you can. And so those that serve him don't serve him because we're forced to. We serve him because we want to. And so Peter is saying, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, but I'm a servant by choice, not by constraint. But Peter talks about that element of his relationship with Christ before the fact that he's an apostle. He says, hey, listen, guys, before my calling, before my authority, before the fruitfulness of what God uses me to do, I belong to him. The most important thing to me is not what I get to do for him, but who I am in him. That's what means the most to me. He says, I'm a servant first. Relationship is first. Ministry is second. I'm an apostle second. The third thing I'd like you to notice is the perspective from which Peter writes. He says thirdly in this verse, he says, unto them which have obtained like precious faith with us. That when Peter looks across the vast spectrum of Christendom, he doesn't look down upon it from above as though he's on a pillar or pedestal and that everyone's looking up at him. But rather, he looks across it from an even playing field. He says, listen, guys, church, I'm just one of you. I may be privileged to be Peter and to have the calling of an apostle and to do what I've done. He says, but where it comes from is that I'm just one of you. And you have obtained like precious faith with me. You have the same potential to bear fruit and leave a mark on this world as I do. And you can grow to the same capacity and measure that I am or that I have. I've obtained the same thing that has now been imparted to you. What an incredibly humble position for Peter to be coming from. You've obtained like precious. And why can he do that? The fourth thing that he mentions in that verse is that this comes through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the reason why there's no difference between Peter and you and I. is because the source of who we are and what we are comes from the same place. It's by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for every single one of us. The Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't look at an apostle any different than he does at someone who's brand new saved. They've just given their life to him. There is absolute equality between us all in the eyes of God. He doesn't give anyone favorable treatment. He doesn't give anyone special access or rights or privileges. We're all equal before him. And so we've all obtained like precious faith through the righteousness that's been given to us, not that we've earned. Not one of us has earned it. 
Every single one of us has received it from Jesus Christ. So I love the greeting that Peter greets the church with there in verse 1. Now he gets right into his theme in verse 2, and he begins talking to us about our growth. And the first thing, again, if you're taking notes, is that our growth starts at the finish line. Notice what Peter says in verse 2. He says, grace and peace, those two things always go together in that order, in the greetings of New Testament writings. Grace, which is God's favor that's given to us apart from our qualifying for it or deserving of it. And peace, that is the peace that we have in our relationship with God and the peace that we experience in our daily lives, that grace and peace be multiplied unto you. So Peter's prayer and desire for you and I that are reading this right now is that God's grace, his favor in our lives, and God's peace be multiplied or that it be growing that we be growing in grace and that we be growing in our peace with God and our experience of peace from God. And then he tells us how that happens. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through, here's how, the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me untie or give you the key of King James language here on this. When it talks about the knowledge of God, or the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not talking about a head knowledge of his name or his person, but rather it's just a way of saying knowing him. So grace and peace be multiplied unto you by knowing him. The way in which we're going to grow is directly connected to the relationship and the strength of the relationship that we have with him. As we come to know him more and more, we're going to experience more and more of him and his grace and peace, however it's manifested, is going to be multiplied in our lives, in our experience, because we're knowing him. The high privilege of, of every Christian and the we, is that we have the right to know God. Not just the right, but we actually have the, the reality that we have a relationship with the true and the living God. That's probably the most valuable and most overlooked truth and diamond of Christendom is that we know him. We know God. And as we continue knowing him and learning of him and growing in him, the grace and peace of God is going to be multiplied in our lives. Now watch this, verse 3. According. Now that word according connects the multiplied growth with what he's about to say. How, How do we grow? He says, according as his divine power so the power is from God and not from us, has given, that's a gift, not something that's earned, unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him or through knowing him that has called us to glory and virtue. So here's what Peter is saying right now as it pertains to you and I and our growth, our Christian growth. Listen, this is important. Is that everything that we need in order for us to grow full grown and become mature and fruitful established Christians has already been given to us. He says it in the past tense. According as his divine power 
has given already unto us everything that we need for life and godliness, and it was given to us in the moment that we began our relationship with Jesus Christ. The moment we began knowing God, he gave us everything we need for completion and perfection in Christian life, meaning that the potential for for maturity is already there. And the finish line is already seen by God. Notice that he has called us to glory, that's heaven, right? (laughs) And virtue, that's character. So what we're going to become and where we're going to end up has already been established within our lives. Now, does that mean that we're already done? Well, I've given my life to Christ. I came forward in a service. Therefore, not only am I already saved, but I'm already mature. I'm already complete. No. Now, God sees the finished product. Just like Jesus, when he looked at Peter and he said, you are Simon, you shall be Peter. In Jesus' mind, he was already Peter. But in Peter's experience, he had a long way to go. And he had a lot of things to grow through and learn before he would be complete and become what he was ultimately going to be. The same thing is true for us. When God looks at us, he sees what he's making us, and in his mind, it's already completed what he wants for our lives. But we have to catch up with what he's already ordained and what he's already seen. When a baby is born, the DNA of that child determines everything that that child will be when it's fully grown. It's its height, its appearance, its stature, its size. Even the very things of its personality and the color of of, of different things, all of that is already programmed into the DNA of that child. It's already there. But it has to unfold and it has to be fed and it has to develop and grow. And ultimately what's already in there from the time that it's in the womb and formed by God will become what it ultimately is. And Peter is saying to us essentially like, listen, when it comes to this whole concept of growth, everything that you need in order to come to maturity has already been given to you. It only now needs to develop. And so this growth thing starts at the finish line. God has already set it in motion and he's already ordained what it's going to be. And now we have to catch up with what he's designed and what he's going to do. So we start at the finish line. And so he says in verse 4, whereby, and that whereby is attached to the divine power that he spoke of back in verse 3. So by the divine power are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God's divine power has given to us the spiritual DNA necessary for us to be completed. What feeds that DNA? Peter tells us it's the precious promises and it's by these that we become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, the way that we go from being newborn again babes to becoming fully spiritual mature The way that we go from being Simon to being Peter is that we must eat. And what we must eat is the word of God. What are the great and precious promises that God has laid out for us? It's the Bible. 
What did Jesus say? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. From Genesis to Revelation, God likens his word unto spiritual food. He calls it honey in Psalm 19. He calls it milk in 2 Peter and in other places, or 1 Peter and in other places. He calls it manna or bread in several places. He calls it meat, strong food, you know, digestible and, and, and nourishing and full of good protein. He calls it that in Hebrews chapter 5. And so the Bible constantly likens itself unto food, and it is the singular food that we are called to eat on a regular basis that will cause us to grow and to become what it is that we'll ultimately be. And the outcome of that is that we become partakers of the divine nature. What's the divine nature? We become Christ-like. So as we are first born again, and then we take in the word of God and feed the DNA that God has given to us, he grows us into the likeness of Christ, and we ultimately end up virtuous and in glory. That's where we go. Now, an amazing thing here, if you see those words divine nature, and I don't know what it says in the NIV or the ESV or the, you know, whatever else, Bible, you know, but in the King James, it says partakers of the divine nature. You know why I like that so much? Because if you just take the, the initials, it's DN, right? The DN. And what is the divine nature of God? It's agape love. And so the DNA of the Christian, the divine nature, is agape love. And so ultimately, that's what God has placed in us. And the way that it happens is that we take in the word of God on a consistent basis, that by these things, the scriptures, we do it. Now, the word of God, when we take it in, it does two things for us that Peter tells us at the end of verse 4. He tells us, first of all, the word of God makes us partakers of the divine nature. Now, the divine nature is something that we do not possess in our natural selves that God gives to us. So it's something that's added to us, right? So the Word of God adds something that we don't have, but the Word of God also removes something that we do have. What's that? He says there that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So not only does the Word of God instill in our lives the things that we don't possess by nature, it removes from our lives the negative things that we do possess by nature. That is the corruptions and the worldly lusts and the things that we were trapped in prior to our coming to Christ. And so the Word of God is absolutely essential in the life of every believer that we be constantly giving ourselves to a study of the Word. Now Peter's going to come back to that a little bit later on. And so Peter answers the question for us, how do we grow? It requires a good, healthy, steady spiritual diet. We must be those that are given to a constant taking in of the Word of God. Now listen, that means that it's essential for Christians that we have a consistency in the Bible. I know a lot of Christians that like books about the Bible. They like teachings from the Bible. They like commentaries on the Bible. They like messages on the radio. They will do devotions and read devotionals. All of those things are good and they have their place. But listen to me. There is no substitute nor power like the Word of God standing alone by itself. Just you, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. And time daily in it with Him. 
There's power in the word. And it's essential that every one of us be given to a study, a constant taking in of the word of God um, as, as he gives it to us. So what does growth look like? Okay, I take in, I understand. It's, the DNA is there. The food is put before me. The table is set. So now I'm going to eat. What does growth look like? How do I know if I'm growing? And what is the process? Is it identifiable? And the answer is absolutely a resounding yes. Notice what Peter says as he goes on in verse 5. He said, and besides this, okay, so aside from this, meaning aside from the fact of what's already been done for you, the death of Christ on the cross, the DNA that's been given to you at the new birth, the food that's available to you to eat, aside from all of that, what is our part now to play in seeing this process completed in our lives? He says, besides this, giving all diligence, meaning that you set your mind and your feet intently upon seeing this process completed in your life, meaning there's a mindset and an attitude that I'm called to have as a Christian if I'm going to see these things completed. So giving all diligence, that's my part. What am I to do? He says, add to your faith now virtue. So I'm to take and add to the faith that's been given to me or that I've obtained or the profession of my faith in Jesus Christ. And now I'm to add something to that. So what I'd like you to do is just in your mind, I'd like you to picture a tree because what he basically has given to us thus far is he's given us the roots of that tree and the roots of that tree is our salvation. When we gave our lives to Christ, we were planted in him. And so our faith has caused us to obtain a relationship with God. We're rooted in him. Now, what he says is you're going to take that root of faith that's been given to you by God, and you're going to add something to it. And so now the trunk of the tree is going to begin to grow. And what is the trunk of the tree? The thing that we're to add or place on top of the roots that are already there and established. The first thing he says is this thing that is called virtue. The word that he uses there in uh, verse 5. He says that we're to add to our faith virtue. So what is virtue? Virtue is moral authority. Virtue is character. Virtue is Christ-likeness. The, the, the concept of becoming what it is that he's making us into. Now, if we want to define it purely with scripture, the two places that virtue is, is, is um, kind of unfolded for us so that we can understand it is Proverbs 31, where it talks about the virtuous woman. And as you go through that, every element of that chapter talks about the character or, or the person on the inside that this woman is. And so virtue, first of all, has to do with the character that makes us what we are on the inside. And so that's what he's talking about. But that's not all virtue is. It isn't just our character, but it's also the authority that comes out of that character. Do you remember when Jesus was fulfilling his ministry and there was a certain day that there was a woman that had an issue of blood and she was bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all of her money she had seen every doctor, tried every therapy. She had, was schooled in all the YouTube uh, concepts that were there. Everything that she had tried ended in failure, and she was nothing better for all of her efforts. 
And she said, if I can just touch the border of his garment, I know that I'll be made whole. And so she sneaks through the crowd. She touches just the hem of Jesus' robe. And immediately she knew that the issue of blood was dried up. She was healed completely. And Jesus stopped dead in his tracks, though he was thronged with a multitude. And he, and he turned around and he said, who touched me? And his disciples said, what are you talking about? There's a multitude of people. Everyone's touching you. What do you mean who touched you? And he said, no, no, no. Somebody touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And you look at that and you say, virtue? What does virtue have to do with power to heal someone that has an infirmity? Why did Jesus employ the word virtue when he was talking about power that healed someone that had an issue of blood? Here's the idea is that because Jesus, in his character and in his person, had the virtue of the Christ-like character, that translated into power to reproduce that in somebody who came in contact with his life. In other words, because Jesus was whole on the inside, he had power to impart whole to someone who came into contact with him on the outside. So when the Bible talks about virtue, it's talking about character that's in alignment with what God wants us to be that then translates into a fruitful effectiveness in our lives as we interact with other people. It talks about a power that exists in our life because our character in the unseen place is congruent with what we're called by God in the heavenly realms and that produces the ability for us to reproduce that in other people as well. So virtue is the quality of being what he calls me to be in the secret place and then letting that bear fruit out from my life in the translation or expression of power as I come in contact with other people. So I'm to diligently pursue the adding of virtue to the faith that I'm already rooted in. That's the tree trunk upon which all else goes. Meaning that I'm to strive for moral excellence. Now this is not legalism. and We're going to see that as we see the, 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 the list unfold. God's not interested in me faking it. He's interested in me transforming into it. Paul would say constantly to the churches, he says, that you would walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. The word worthy means equal, meaning that our lives would be in equality with what he's made us. If you put Jesus on one side of the scale and my life on the other side of the scale, Paul says, make those things equal. Now that's laughable. Because that's never going to happen, right? You and I are never going to equal the measure of Christ. But what we're called to do is we're to strive for that level of moral excellence. We're to fight through and we're to uh, see those things done by prayer, by the word of God, by our growth. So we're to be continually adding to our faith virtue. Then he goes on to say, then add to your virtue knowledge. So if you're picturing the tree again in your mind, the branch or the main branch that comes off of this trunk or that grows off of this branch of virtue is now knowledge. Now, isn't it interesting that knowledge is secondary to virtue? You would think that you would grow virtue on the branch of knowledge, but it's the other way around. Knowledge grows on the branch of virtue. Knowledge means growing. It deals with facts, 
but on an experiential level. It isn't knowledge in the concept of having a university degree. I know things. I know the Bible. I know facts about Christ. I know the history of spiritual things. That's not knowledge in the biblical context. Knowledge is experiential knowledge. It means that not only do I know this in my head, but I've proved it through my life. I've lived it out and walked it so that now I know it by experience. It's mine. I own it. John would say these things, 1 John chapter 1. Listen to what John says. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Now listen. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, my intent and purpose is to impart to you what I've seen and heard, my knowledge. But he says, my knowledge comes from what I have handled, what I have thoroughly examined, what I've looked upon, what has affected and permeated itself into every part of my life. That's the knowledge that I'm imparting unto you. And so the knowledge that we're to add to this virtue is not facts, but experience. I know him. I know his presence. I know his person. As I know Jesus, I know more about life. I know more about myself. I know more about the world and how it works. I know the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. I know the difference between heaven and hell. I know the difference between right and wrong. I know what it means to have my spiritual senses exercised to discern good and evil. I understand these things from the experiential platform, not just from knowledge or from a textbook. And he's saying that we're to add now to our virtue or to our character the experience of knowing things in the inner part of the life. It's part of our growth. And we're to be diligent to do our part to see that come through in our lives. He says, then furthermore, we're to add to knowledge temperance. So again, the tree from the branch of knowledge now comes the next thing which he calls temperance or self-control. Or discipline. Now, there's various types of discipline that it's important for us to understand in the Christian life. We have to have discipline and self-control in the areas of our indulgences. And that's the most common. We all understand that, right? But there's other self-control. There's self-control in our zeal. Sometimes we become so zealous for God that we need to learn how to temper that zeal and bring it into a Christ-likeness. I remember for myself personally, as a new believer, I was so zealous to know the truth that I let everyone know I knew the truth and that they were wrong. And I remember at one point I read about Jesus that it says that he shall not cry nor strive nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. And I thought, wait, <laughs> I thought that's what I'm supposed to do. But that's not Christ-like. It says a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flux. He's gentle in the way that he deals with us. Oh, so, Lord, I've got to add a little self-control to this zeal. Yes. We have to learn how to control or temper our tongue, right? The things that we say and that come out of our mouth. Not just our tongue, but also our flesh and the various things. We're to add to our knowledge or our experience this idea of self-control. I find that fasting is an incredible way to exercise and to work out self-control and temperance in a life. 
It's a tool that God has given to us whereby we can develop temperance or self-control. He says that we're to add to self-control or out of the branch of self-control, next comes patience. It's the cousin of self-control. Now, we're going to learn patience whether we like it or not. Lord, give me patience. Give me patience right now. Listen, patience grows from the branch of self-control. If you want to be more patient, exercise your self-control. Patience will be a natural byproduct of it. He says, add to your patience now godliness or godlikeness. Now, here's what blows my mind in this list of things. Because it is progressive, isn't it? Is that godliness is actually fifth on the list. You would think that this would go way back towards the beginning, this whole idea of being godlike or having godlikeness. Why is godliness fifth, and why is it that godliness grows out of patience? Here's why. Because godliness takes time to develop. God isn't looking for the hypocritical, manufactured, fake acting type of godliness, where we put piety on our face and we cover up what we really are with what we think he wants us to be. God wants who he is to be cultivated in our lives from the inside out. And it doesn't happen overnight. It happens as we grow. And this actually comforts me because it means that God is patient in seeing this develop in my life. Did you know that God doesn't expect of you to be more spiritually mature than you are? If you've only been saved for a week or a month or two years, he doesn't expect you to offer your son Isaac on the altar. Do you understand that? Is that he's incredibly patient with us and he wants to see reality growing in us, not produced in a fake and hypocritical way. And so godliness grows with patience. As we walk with him, he forms the character of Christ in us. He says, out of the branch of godliness grows brotherly kindness. It just simply means to be kind to people. And then out of brotherly kindness grows agape love. Now, agape love is unconditional love, and it is not natural to the human condition. Agape love can only be experienced and expressed as it's given to us by God. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And our love towards God is responsive to our experiencing his love towards us. And the love that we give away to other people is the reflection of the love that he gives to us as well. And it's something that takes time. It develops in us as we grow. And so these are the things that we're called to grow in. Now notice what Peter says concerning this growth. Verse 8. And we're not going to finish the chapter, so don't get nervous. He says, for if these things, the list that we just read, the things that we're called to add now to our faith, if these things be in you and abound, meaning they're growing. That's what abound means. It means that you're growing in these areas. Here's going to be the outcome or the result. They make you. Do you see that there? That these things present in your lives make you, and the word make means they place you or set you in a path. Or if you can imagine yourself jumping into a river wherein you're a slave to the current, you're going to go where the river is going. What Peter is saying is that if these things are in you, then you are in the river, they make you, that you shall neither be barren, 
nor unfruitful in your relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're doing your diligence to add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance and temperance, you know, patience and kindness and brotherly, you know, love and agape, if these things are in you, then that's going to make it so that you're not barren or unfruitful. This really gives the answer to John chapter 15, doesn't it? Remember, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me will bear much fruit. What does it mean to abide in you? Here's what it means. It means grow. It means continue knowing him in such a way that you're adding to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge and, and so on and so on. And, and as you do that, you're abiding. You will not be barren in your relationship with him. You will not be unfruitful in, in your experience in the Christian life. And Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and that your fruit would remain. And if we're growing in these things, that's what's going to happen in our lives. Now, on the contrary, verse 9, he says, but he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. In other words, if you sit here tonight and you claim to have a Christian faith, and these things are not a part of your Christian life or your Christian experience, to be growing in virtue and in knowledge of him experientially and in in, in the various things, if that's the case, then Peter's assessment of your Christian faith is that you are in a blinded position, is that you cannot see where you've come from, that's what he means when he says has forgotten that he's been purged of his old sins. You forgot that. And you don't see where you're going, that you've been called to glory and virtue, that there, there's something that God wants to produce in your life. You're wandering. You're floundering in your Christian experience. You're wasting the potential of your earthly existence. Look back real quick with your eyes to verse 4. He says in verse 4 again, he says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, listen, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Do you see that word might there? It means that it's not absolute. Well, I'm a Christian, so therefore I'm going to one day be just like Jesus. No, you might be, but we have a part to play. We're to see what we were. And desire with all our heart to never go back there again and never to partake in the old sins or the old life. And we're to see where we're going and see the value of it. That God, it was worth the blood of your son to be bled out for me in order that I might be changed from what I was and become what you want to make me. And Lord, with everything that in me, I long for that transformation. And God, I want to grow in my relationship with you. I want your presence and your person and your life and your truth and your plan for me to be the chief and highest end and ambition of my life. That there be nothing else and nothing greater that I want for my life than what you have planned for my life. And if you can't see that and if these things aren't in you, then God's assessment is that you've become blinded spiritually and you've forgotten where you've come from. And the saying is true. He that doesn't learn from history is destined to what? To repeat it. And if we're in a blinded condition in our Christian life and we've forgotten what it is that we've been saved from, it's only a matter of time before instead of growing in the grace and knowledge of God, we regress back into the things that he initially saved us out of. 
There is no neutral in the Christian life. We are either growing or we're regressing. It's one or the other. And Peter is saying to us here, grow. Wherefore, rather, verse 10, brethren, give diligence. There's that word again, right? This is our part. It's to be our ambition and aim to make your calling and election sure. That means founded, certain, established. For if you do these things, great promise, you ready for it? You shall never fall. That if we heed the command that Peter gives to us here, the result of that in our lives is that we are going to stand sure, complete. We're going to see his purpose and plan fulfilled within our lives and we won't fall away from him in our sins. We'll stop there for tonight. The musicians can come. Um, We'll pick up next week in verse 16. We looked at verses 12 through 15 concerning Peter's purpose in writing. And so we'll pick up in verse 16 next week and we'll talk about why the Bible is so important. And that will segue very nicely into chapter 2, which talks about um, the, 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 the reality of false teachers and why it's important that we understand them. Here's the exhortation tonight, Christian, as we summarize and wrap things up. Is that if we forget that growth is important in the Christian life, then we're going to find ourselves floundering and meandering and ultimately regressing and backsliding. Don't forget. As Peter the church father, as God our heavenly father reminds us in his word, he says, listen, don't ever forget this. The day that you stop growing is the day that you start shrinking. And it's the first day towards your fall. Grow. Continue to grow. You've started at the finish line. Everything that you need for life and godliness has already been given to you. The food that's going to make it happen is laid out on this table before you. It's powerful and effective. It works. Give yourself to it. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and temperance patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and agape love. Grow in these things and understand that if you do, actually I skipped a verse, didn't I? We got to read verse 11. (laughs) It only takes a second. Don't worry. We'll leave you guys hanging. Listen, here's the end of it. It's a good word to finish with. He says, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. An abundant eternity comes from abundant growth. And it's God's will for us. He's going to help us. Let's go there. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We ask that you'd write these things upon our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would neither be barren nor unfruitful, but that we would grow. Oh, Lord, bring us close to you. We don't desire to be in a religion or to become more religious, but we do desire, Lord, with all of our hearts, to be closer to you, to know your voice, to know your nearness and your presence, to know your will for our lives. And so, Father, would you please help us And I pray for any that might be here tonight, God, that have grown stagnant, that are floundering or meandering, or that maybe have backslidden and are on the brink of a fall, or maybe have even fallen. 
Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that tonight, the words of Peter, the compassion of our Savior would reach us in a fresh way. And that, Father, we would be back on track. So help us, Lord. Thank you for giving us these things. Send us forth in your power and in your life. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.